Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you people, a few weeks ago, I was hanging out, walking through the condo, and Joanne was watching NCIS, and I saw my guest on it, and I'm like, oh my God, I love that guy, and she's like, I love him too. She goes, get him on Cooper Talk, and I said, I should, so I reached out to him, and he said, he'll come on, and it's perfect timing, because he was just part of the movie Coda, that just won the Oscar for Best Picture, and my guest is Kevin Chapman. How you doing, Kevin? Hey, how you doing, Cooper? Good. So, Coop, Chappy. See, it's good to see it. When they call me Coopy, it sounds stupid. Chappy sounds good. Coopy's not good. So, t- tell me, I mean, the Oscar. I know you were in Mystic River, which was nominated, but tell me what it feels like to, to you know, be part of such a, first of all, great movie, and an influential movie. It made a lot of difference. What does that feel like for you when you, when you win an Oscar? Well, you know, I have, um, this movie is kind of special. I have five cousins who are part of this community. Uh, my cousin Karen is, not only is she deaf, she's also blind. Um, so this was really kind of a special project. And, you know, I really take my hat off to Sean Hader because this was a film that was either going to do what it did and, and make a lot of noise or it was going to go the complete opposite direction. I, I I never felt that this was going to be a film that was going to find a middle ground. It was either going to be great or it wasn't. And, um, and you know, it really exposes that community to a lot of people. You know, she did something very interesting in the film where she dropped the sound in the middle of the movie so that people could get experience, uh, you know, for a, a brief moment in time, what it must feel like to be someone who is hearing impaired. So, um, it was really, for me, it was a very special film. And, and, you know, it's always nice that when you're part of something that was as small of a movie as Coda was, that had such a tremendous impact in the industry. Now, did you, since you have five members, did you personally pursue that role when you heard about it? Or did they come no, up? No, I didn't. I actually, you know, um, there's a, a casting agent friend of mine, Angela Perry, uh, reached out to me and she's, she was telling me, you know, Sean, uh, is originally from the Boston area. She lives, uh, she grew up in Cambridge, which is right across the river. And, um, and I was in Los Angeles for a long time. And, uh, once my kids went off to school, my wife and I decided to move back East. So I've been, I've been here in the Boston area now for probably the last nine years, um, and there's a local casting director by the name of Angela Perry who was doing the local casting for the film. And, uh, you know, she, as I say, she's an old friend, and she called me up and she said, hey, you know, I think this is really special. And she said, you, know, you should come over here. So I went over and met with Sean, and uh, she offered me the role of Brady. Now, what was it like being on set when there are deaf actors? I mean, it's got to be something a little different because you're used to, you know, doing the scenes. I mean, how's it as an actor? How do you, do you have to acclimate to it? I mean, it must be different when you, when you're on a set and you can yell, you know, what is it like acting with, uh, well, it, it, you know, it, it was like, there was one particular scene, um, where a conversation is taking place and, um, you know, my cue, I'm supposed to come in. Uh, and, and it was uh, a Troy and Daniel who played, you know, the son Leo and, and Troy played the dad, Frank. And the two of them were having a conversation. Of course, they were signing back and forth. Now, I don't I don't I didn't study sign language, so I, I didn't really 
quite know when I'm supposed to come into the conversation. So there were a couple of moments like that that were that were a little um, awkward for me as a you know as an actor. It's a very unconventional um, situation, um, but you know, all in all, I mean, it was just it was a labor of love. Everyone there was 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 in it for the right reasons, and um, and Sean Hader led the charge, and and you know, I'm I'm really. Uh, I'll be quite frank with you. I was really disappointed that she wasn't in the conversation for best director. You know, I mean, she made her a movie with Steven Spielberg's craft service budget on West Side Story. And, and she wasn't part of the conversation for best director. I, I, you know, and, and, and no disrespect to Steven Spielberg. He's, you know, without a doubt, one of the greatest directors of our time. But, um, you know, he is a, he is a, a director who took a real chance uh, and not only did she take a real chance, but she took it with uh, a, a real um, fiscal uh, challenge as well, and and you know, and went on to win Best Picture. So I, I just didn't that this thing that really baffled me that she wasn't part of the conversation for Best Director. Well, that always annoys me too. Like you see, like I remember it was um, Dead Man Walking. You know, it was well, Sean Penn. I mean, uh, Tim Robbins wasn't uh, nominated for Best Director. But, you know, you had the best actor, best actress, right. best picture. It's like, well, the reason they, you know, they're great actors, but the director had something to do with that. And that always irritates me because she won best screenplay. You had a best supporting actor win. And you think, you know, she's doing something. I mean, bottom line is she's working with a deaf actor and he won an Oscar. So it's got to be something about her damn directing. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And, and, and you know, and once again, like I say, I'm not, you know. I'm not, there's no disrespect to Steven Spielberg whatsoever. I, I, you know, he, he's, like I say, one of the greatest directors of our time. But, I mean, he was remaking a film that was usually successful. You know, it wasn't like, I mean, he put his own spin on it. But was it really that, you know, did it, did it really um, go in a completely different direction as opposed to the original? I didn't get that sense. Did you? Did you see the film? I didn't watch it. This is funny. My wife, my <laughs> wife, and we, we both love the original, but she started watching it on Saturday, and, and she loves movies, and she just couldn't get into it. I was sitting there, right. I was watching a ball game or something. I don't know what I was doing, and she comes yeah. in, and she's like, I go, what, what, what's up? And she's like, I just couldn't get into it. So it's one of those yeah. things. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's something that also the Oscar, you know, they have their favorites, and that's just the way it works sometimes, but, uh, but at least the one best picture, and you were part of it. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm like I say, I'm very blessed and very fortunate. But you know, like I say, all the, all the, all the kudos and all the, all the accolades go to to Sean Hader. Um, you know, it started with something that she created, and you know, she got us all to buy in and and take this journey with her. And um, you know, she hit it out of the park. Now, you've had a great career. You've been in so much stuff. You know, you, know, you forget, but I watch IMDb, like, oh, my God. And I, I really, my wife, when I first started dating her, I was in L.A., and she was here in New Jersey, and she turned me on the person of interest. So I really saw that, and I always, like, I always felt bad because you always got beat up. I was like, this guy is getting <laughs> smell. How, how did your acting career start? I mean, you know, you look at IMDb, your credits started later, but when did you start knowing you wanted to be an actor? You know, something I, I never knew that I wanted to be an actor. I grew up in the inner city. Um, my mother raised four of us in public housing, uh, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of actors. And, uh, I later in life went on to work for the city of Boston as a mayor's liaison to uh, the largest voting district in the city. And, uh, 
I worked in a logistical capacity um, with a director by the name of Ted Demi. He was the nephew to Jonathan Demi. And I worked with him and Dennis Leary on a movie called Monument Ave. And um, Ted kept looking at me kind of funny. He said, can you act? And I said, I think I'm intelligent enough to. And so he gave me a script. He said, look at the role of Mickey Pat. I looked at the role. I had lunch with him and Dennis Leary the next day. And they said, all right, tell us who Mickey Pat is. And I told him. And they said, all right, can you get three weeks off of work? We want you to play him. So I played this character, Mickey Pat. Of course, I was scared to death. I had no real acting experience. And then um, once that happened, I was like, wow, I think I could do this. So then I started auditioning. I got a small part in Cider House Rules. I got a small part in the bedroom. Um, and then I said, if I'm going to have any real success with this, I need to develop a craft. So I quit my job at City Hall. I put all my things in a U-Haul. I moved to Los Angeles. I bounced at the, I was a bouncer at the House of Blues on Sunset Strip at night, studied acting during the day. I did that for about two years. And then when Clint Eastwood cast me in Mr. River, I never looked back. You know, it's funny. I, I talked to a lot of actors who are theater trained. And when they first walk in a movie set, they usually shit themselves because they all know the blocking and all that. For you, I mean, you you weren't even trained at all, and you said you were scared, but you must have been like, "What the hell's blocking?" Because I know, like, for me, when I would audition for stuff, they go, "Give us a slate." I'm like, "What the hell's a slate?" But what was it? I mean, did you understand blocking when you got on? I mean, what was it that first when you first worked on that first movie? No, I, I had I had no idea what I was doing. I kept looking at Dennis, and and you know, I knew Dennis uh, from years in uh, the Boston comedy clubs, you know. And Dennis looked at me and he said, you're in the deep end of the pool now. He said, either, either swim or drown, you know? And um, so I had just had to figure out, I figured it out on the fly. And you know, it, all, it all worked out. Now, Mystic River, you get to work with, I mean, a legendary director, a great cast. Once again, you're, you're still newer. I mean, is that still intimidating for you? Or did you feel you were getting your groove by then? No, I mean, I had worked at the time. I had done... You know, I had done probably a half dozen television shows. You know, I probably had, you know, seven or eight movies under my belt. Um, nothing of the size of the character that I played in Mystic River. But, um, you know, I, I had I had some experience at that point. And it was funny. When I walked in, I landed. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I, I, now I'm married. I have a child. I get the film. Uh, I fly to Los Angeles, excuse me, fly from Los Angeles to Boston. Car picks me up, takes me right to the Ritz Carlton because Clint and uh, Sean was the one who really wanted to meet me because Sean and I, our characters work so closely together. We, we, you know, he really, he's, Sean's all about, you know, getting with the actors that he's in with and, you know, building a bond and all that. So, uh, I walked in uh, into the Ritz Carlton uh, lounge, and Clint Eastwood was at the head of the table, and then it was Tim Robbins and Lawrence Fishburne, Marsha Gay Harden, Laura Lenny. Sean had saved a seat from me right next to him, um, and and I walked in. I sat down, and Clint Eastwood said to me, "He said, so, how do you feel, kid?" <laughs> and I said, "Come on, man, it's a home game, you know." And uh, Everyone laughed, and away we went. Now, what's it like working with Sean? Because he just seems like he's, you know, 
he just is so intense. I mean, you know, you look at the guy, even like I saw him on uh, talking on talk shows. He's just like seems like a guy who is totally intense. What it, was he like that off camera? I mean, because you're in scenes. I mean, with him. I, I I love Sean, and I you know, and I'll, I'll be quite frank with you, I miss Sean. I mean, I I, um, I really enjoyed our our time together. You know, he was a guy because you know he's so vocal about his, about his politics that. Uh, I really wasn't sure how this was going to go. And um, he could not have been more inviting, uh, collaborative. Uh, you know, he, he just, I had, I had the greatest time. And actually, after I finished uh, Mystic River, um, Sean called me to come play his college roommate in 21 Grams with uh, Alejandro Rutu in, in, in Memphis. Um, but, you know, it's it, people think like you know you do a movie with people and you your buddies for life it's like they're going left you're going right they're going you know they're going in one direction you're going in another and it's just like you know you, you when you see each other on a movie set that's when you reconnect but really you know actors and actresses are like a pack of gypsies you know we just you know you're you just you're always going somewhere and meeting new people and new friends and new relationships so, I call them movie friends is what I call them. Well, it's funny because from like the late 80s to the mid 90s, I was on the road doing stand-up comedy. It was the same thing. You know, you work a weekend in, let's say, Richmond, Virginia with a guy, you know, right. and then you don't see him until like three years later at Hartford. And, and, right. But you automatically reconnect even though you don't talk in between because you have your own lives going on. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I, I, were you a comic in, in New York or in Los Angeles? I was a Philly comic. And it's funny. I, I had opened for Dennis. He was playing at the Comedy Works. It's just as he was blowing up. And I remember, yeah. I still remember we sat there and after, and I used to be a smoker. We drank beers and we smoked and we talked about hockey. And I just remember because he yeah, was yeah. a Bruins fan. I was a Flyers fan. Was that yeah. thing? But he was, yeah. he was, he was a great act. And he was just a nice, yeah. he was just a nice, nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Dennis and I have a huge uh, passion for hockey. That's how I met Dennis. I used to be a bouncer at Nick's Comedy Stop in Boston. So, you know, all those guys. Um, and I had a, I had a three-bedroom apartment in in, uh, in Dorchester, which is right, you know, it's just outside of downtown. So I used to let all the comics sleep at my house. So I had like a tell, Jay Moore. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, Dane Cook, Bobby Kelly, all these guys all would all come through. Patrice O'Neill would all come through uh, and stay at my house. So I mean, I know, a, I know a thousand comedians, um, and um, so yeah, that's how I became friendly with Dennis. Was working at the comedy club, working at Next Comedy Club. It's funny. So, that's a lot of us comics. We started working at the club just so we could get stage time in Philadelphia. It was the Comedy Factory outlet because we knew if we right. if we worked at the door, we got paid like under the table. We got stage time on open mic night we didn't have to pick yeah. they used to pick names out of the hat and you'd be you, right. you pick 25 you're like holy shit you know but if, yeah. you, if you work there you got seven minutes instead of five and you got you yeah. know slots four or six or eight and it, it was great cause yeah. you got to see so many great acts that it was, yeah. it was a learning experience yeah it's so funny i mean I, I got to see all those guys on the way up like bill burr dane cook um Ray Romano, Ray Romano was not, you know, Kevin James, um, you know, uh, all those guys, all, all on the rise, Louis CK, um, you know, there was so many of them that went on to tremendous success that, uh, you know, you got to see when they were just starting out and, um, you know, it's nice when you run into them, you know I mean? Like, like I run into Bill Burr whenever I, 
I'll, I'll bump into him, and um, you know, it's just it's like all home week, you know. Well, so you you're, you're an actor, you know, you're working, you go back to Boston, then you go back to L.A. And you're getting gigs now. Then, then Brotherhood comes along. Was was then that doesn't that that's also you know does that take place in Boston? Because I know or... no, it took place in Providence, Rhode Island. So I got Brotherhood off of Mystic River. Um, Blake Masters, who was and uh, just a, I think you know a genius. I mean, he's just a great, great writer. Um, and you know, Brotherhood was one of those things that I felt like. Maybe it was it was handled um, poorly uh, in the in the in the marketing because it was released on Fourth of July weekend, which I still baffles me to this day. I mean, it was definitely something that I feel should have been like an October September release, a fall release. Uh, in, in, you know that show. I, I made that show fifteen years ago, and I still have people to this day stop me in the street because they're just finding it now saying, Hey, when, when are you, are you making more of those shows? I'm like, we shot that 15 years ago, <laughs> but, um, we won a Peabody award for best, uh, best cast ensemble. And, uh, it was, you know, it was, that was really, I mean, Jason Isaacs, Jason Clark, Fanula Flanagan, Annabeth Gacy's and Ethan Embry. We had, a, we had a really good cast and, in, in, uh, in the writing, you know, Henry Bromel was our, was our executive producer who went on, um, he went on to do, um, uh, the, the, the show on Showtime there about the, uh, about the CIA. Oh, that home, was uh, Homeland. Homeland. Yeah. Henry went on to, to do Homeland and then, and then, um, succumbed to cancer and, and, and passed. But, um, yeah, we had a great, we had a great thing going and it just, it just felt like the audience found it after it was, it was much too late. Well, what was that like for you though? It was, it was, it was a steady gig, you know I mean? Even though it was, it was shorter seasons, but you know, it was something where you're on a series that you're going to keep going back to. I mean, is it, was it depressing when it ended because you know, it was good work. I mean, does it, did it? Yeah, you oh, absolutely. hundred percent. We got our first order. Uh, a year one was 13. Second order was 10. And then I think the third year they ordered eight. Um, and, you know, it was, it was unfortunate because we knew, you know, we were making something that was really good. Um, but it just, like I say, the, you know, the, the marketing just, I feel, wasn't, was handled poorly. And if, if the marketing had been handled properly, I, I always, always used to make jokes that Ray Donovich send up a piece, send us a piece of their action because we, <laughs> we, we set the table for them. <laughs> So so after that after you and now you, do you you go back to L.A. Yeah no so what I did was so I finished Brotherhood um, and then I went and did Ladder Forty Nine with John Travolta and Joaquin Phoenix in uh, in Baltimore that was interesting we were there for six months shooting that film we went uh, I went to the Baltimore Fire Academy during the day and then rode with uh, the Baltimore Fire Department at night going to actual working fires and stuff. So what do they teach you at the academy? I mean, are you actually taking firefighter courses? Well, I mean, the entire academy, we were going through the, you know, they were, they were teaching us how to, you know, a couple lines and how to uh, come out of buildings on belays and how to, you know, do search and rescue in, a, in, a, in an active building. And, um, you know, a lot of the same things that you would learn if you were, you know, going to the fire academy to, to join the fire service. 
How hard to work is that? Like, you know, I, I did I did background one time and I had to wear the outfit. I was like, holy shit, this stuff is heavy. I mean, yeah. how hard how hard was that on you guys? I mean, as an actor, you're probably thinking, wait a second, you know, wait, I got to I got to go do fire school. I mean, I, I'm an actor. No, I mean, it was great. You know, the director, Jay Russell, was it was his idea. It was really it was a really bright idea. It was a really smart idea because what happened was in the film, whenever the the apparatus pulled up to the to the set that we were you know supposed to be putting out the fire um we all knew what our function was so all they did was position the cameras in, in its specific locations they knew that we were going to come to them as opposed as opposed to them bringing the camera to us so they would set the camera four or five cameras in, in you know strategic locations they knew that like i was the lead at the the uh the film took place over a 10-year period so at the beginning of the film i was the lead off man and John Travolta was the officer in the front seat. Kevin Daniels and Joaquin Phoenix was going in with the first line. And then as the movie progresses, Joaquin's character goes on to ladder 49. Travolta's character gets promoted to district chief. My character gets promoted to lieutenant. So I go to the front seat. So it was, you know, over a period. So we had to learn these, 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 these jobs. And so as soon as we pulled up, we all knew what our function was. All we did was get off the vehicle and, you know, get off the apparatus and, and, and do our job. And the director just picked his shots. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty genius on Jay Russell's part. Now, did, uh, now you also were a rescue me, which, which had firemen, but, uh, did Dennis get you that part? Cause I loved, I loved rescue me. I mean, I, you know, funny, it was funny how a uh, rescue me was a thank you. Um, really Dennis wrote that character for me. I played Terrence, the obnoxious, brother of uh, Steve Pasquale's uh, character. Um, as I say, Dennis is, a, you know, is a friend. Um, so I was up for a movie called Recount with Kevin Spacey. Um, and it's funny, this is the second time I've told the story today and I haven't told it in years. Um, so Jay Roach was the director. Jay Roach did Meet the Fockers. He did Austin Powers, you know, huge, huge director. Um, so he was directing recount. It was about the recount down in Florida with, um, with Bush and Gore. Um, there was a guy from my neighborhood, Michael Hooley, who, you know, they, they, they say the raging Cajun was the guy who put, put Bill Clinton in, in the white house. But, it, you know, a lot of the insiders say it was really Michael Hooley who put him in the white house. So, Recount goes down, Al Gore sends for Michael Hooley. Michael Hooley goes down to Florida to, to kind of spearhead the recount. Jay Roach is going to do this movie about it. So they got Kevin Spacey. They bring me in. They knew from my political background that I was from Boston. They bring me into audition. I have a phenomenal audition. My agent calls up and they go, we're out to Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton passes. We'll come back to Kevin. So week goes by. So Michael Keaton passes. They call me up, bring me in for another audition. I have an incredible audition. But prior to that audition, I called Michael Hooley and the real Michael Hooley. And I said, hey, I'm up to play you in this movie. And, it, you know, in the true Boston fashion, because he's a Boston guy, you know, through and through. Hooley says, you tell Jay Roach and HBO that if they don't hire you, they can go F themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so I go in, I have a great audition. At the end of the audition, I look at Jay Roach and I say, and I have a message from Michael Hooley. <laughs> and I tell him the message. 
And Jay Roach looks at me and laughs like, hey, I'm Jay Roach. You know, nobody's going to tell me that. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So week goes by, my agent calls up, and they go, look, they really like Kevin, but physically he's not Michael Hooley. Michael Hooley's a big, tall, thin guy. I'm a short, kind of boxy guy. So long story short, Dennis gets the part. So about two weeks, three weeks go by, I email Dennis, and I say, hey, listen, I said, I, I heard you got this part. I was up for it. Congratulations. I'm glad you got it. I said, if you want, I can set you up with Michael Hooley. My phone rings instantly. It's Dennis. He says, you can't, you can't, have, you can't hook me up with Hooley. And I said, I can't. He goes, he told HBO, he told Jay Roach, he told everybody to go after themselves. <laughs> So I said, Dennis, I said, you know me, I said, if, if I called you and, you know, if I sent you an email to tell you this, I can do it. So I called Michael Hooley up and I said, Michael, I said, I didn't get the part, as you know. I said, but Dennis is my friend. And I said, um, and you know, I would really appreciate it if you would have a conversation with him. And Michael said, you know, he said, Dennis is good to the firefighters. He goes, and my brother's a firefighter. So he goes, I, you say he's your friend, I'll talk to him. So that's I. So I put that that together for Dennis, and as a thank you, he wrote this seven episode arc for me on Rescue Me. How fun was that set? Rescue. I love that show. It's so funny. There's something about you know, and I know we'll talk later. You were you're on City in the Hill, but there's something about shows from Boston. And as as I said, as a Philadelphia kid, you know, we're we're almost the same age. I grew up hating the Red Sox, hating the Celtics, hating you know Boston. You just hated Boston. But you know, the comics are great and the shows are great. But how fun was how fun was working on on uh, Rescue Me, I mean, with Dennis, you know, and just, I mean, it must have been a, a blast because it, it just looks like a, it looked like a loose, fun set. Yeah, well, that, well actually, that was the New York Fire Department. That right, was right, I know that. Yeah, but um, it was great because, you know, Dennis was there, who, uh, uh, you know, Lenny Clark was another friend, um, you know, um, Robert Burke, Robert John Burke was a great actor. He was on there. He played the priest. Um, you know, so I knew I knew so many guys. I Jack McGee was on there early on. I so I knew so many of the actors. So it was, you know, I, I wish they had rolled a camera in between takes because that's when you know that's when the real comedy came out. You know, was uh, everyone sitting around waiting for them to set up the camera? Uh, you know, breaking each other's balls. <laughs> now at this point, <clears throat> are you getting offers? or Are you still auditioning for stuff? Because I, or... you know, everyone. I mean, there's very few people that get offers and anyone that tells you they, you know, they, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've gotten jobs where I've been offered. Like I just did a turn on, on billions where it was a straight offer. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's an art and it's subjective, you know? And, you know, I know that like, um, I know like George Clooney did that, that remember he did that movie about Chuck Barris yeah, uh, the Gong Show guy who supposedly worked at the CIA and Sam Rockwell. Um, now I know firsthand <coughs> that there were some really famous, far more famous actors than Sam Rockwell at that time. Because Sam Rockwell was virtually, you know, he 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 was just a, a really a journeyman actor at that point that wanted that role, and Clooney was like, "No, Sam's my guy," you know. So it's it's all subjective. It's just because you have this big body of work or this big name. I mean, there you know, there's probably a handful of people that can get a movie lit. Um, but for the most part, you know, everyone is in there swinging. 
you know. Now, now how did personal of interest come apart uh, come about? Because it's funny, I was I was living in LA visiting my wife back here, and then she eventually moved out to LA and we moved back. But she would always watch it. And I, I didn't really watch a lot of TV when I was in LA. I was out, you know, all the time. And I really enjoyed the show. Was was that a, a long process for you to get that role? No, it was a couple of auditions. So Jonathan Nolan was a big Brotherhood fan. So that's really how I got that, you know. Uh, Jonathan Nolan uh, was the, the creator and executive producer. And uh, Greg Plagman was a showrunner who I had worked with prior on a couple of episodes of Cold Case that I'd done. He was the showrunner on Cold Case. And I did like a two-episode arc on that. And, um, and when I walked in, you know, Jonathan Nolan started to tell me what a huge, you know, huge fan of mine from Brotherhood he was. And, uh, and that's really how that began. I think I auditioned maybe twice. And usually what they do is they'll bring you in, they'll bring in, you know, 10 guys, they'll narrow it down to, you know, five and then they may bring two the, to the network, you know, and then the network, you know, usually wants to put their, their mark on it as well. But I had done, at that point, I had done um, Brotherhood, which was part of the CBS Corp. So they were familiar with me as a person, you know. The network just wants to make sure that you're not a guy who they're, they're going to bring in there and it's going to cause them a lot of problems, you know, with, uh, you know, your personal life or, you know, it's going to make the their brand uh, tarnish in any way, you know? Now, what were you expecting when you walked on that set? Because the show is different. You know, it, it had a different uh, had a different plot. It was it was good. It was a lot of action. But when you first went onto the, onto the set, you know, and, you know, you played Fusco, and, you know, you were... Fusco. Fusco, well, it's a Philly accent. You were sort of grumpy, you know, and you are <laughs> But what did you expect? Did you expect it would run as long as it did? I mean, were you sitting there? Oh, I never, I never did. I mean, I, you know, I, in Fusco was one of those characters. It could have died in any any episode. I mean, every episode I open a script like this, like, all right, yep, still standing, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, the thing with Fusco is, and, and, and I find that that happens with um, a fair amount of projects that, that I get asked to play, is, is that because, you know, because I look like the every man, you know, it's like when I'm out in the street, people will come up to me and they're like, did we work together? Do you live in, you know, and, and, and you're like, no, no, no. And then after about the third or fourth question, I'll say to them, I'm an actor and you've probably seen me in something. And then they go, oh my God, you are, you know, but because you look at me, you don't see, you know, you don't see actor. You just see the every guy. So that's kind of been the guys that I've always been asked to play, which which bring a sense of reality to the rest of the story that's taking place. You know, like you had you had Jim Caviezel playing this black ops special forces guy, but you really didn't quite know what what division he was in or what his, you know, what his specialty was. Or then you had Michael Armisen playing this billionaire, but you really wasn't sure how he made his money or how, exactly how much money he had. Uh, and then you bring in Fusco and what he does is he brings a sense of reality to all that other stuff. You know, those other things could have drifted into the land of, of disbelief, but you see that. And then you see Fusco and you go, Oh, well, this guy he looks like a cop, sounds like a cop. So the, the rest of this must be real, you know? And it, what it does is it brings it brings a sense of gravity to the project where it doesn't fly because that was a that was a show that could have easily flown out of to the land of disbelief 
where the audience says, you know, if an audience can't buy in, they're not going to watch. I don't care what it is, you know. Um, you know, I, I tell that story all the time with uh, <clears throat> Johnny Depp's portrayal of, of Whitey Bulger in, in Black Mass, you know. The problem I had with Black Mass, there was no one to get behind. You know, you watch a movie like The Godfather, right? Michael Corleone wants nothing to do with the family business until they try to kill his father. You can get behind that guy. You know, Ray Liotta in Goodfellas wants to be a, a gangster and, until he gets inside of it and realizes how lonely and scary that world really is, right? Now we can't get out. You can get behind that guy. But a movie like Black Mass, there was nobody to get behind. Well, you it's, know? it's funny you say that because I've been watching uh, Super Pumped and uh, mm-hmm. and it's about the Uber guy and, and you just hate the guy. And you're sitting there right. and you're like, and I have this, I mean, I want, I'm watching to see him get self-destruct. And I always mm-hmm. say to people, it wasn't like back in the day you would get behind, you know, Tony Soprano or Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad or Michael mm-hmm. Chiklis in The Shield. Not good people, right. but you rooted for them. Now you have Super Pump, then you have the one about the girl from Theranos, the uh, dropout. And you're like, right. man, these people are just assholes. <laughs> you're right. watching it. And instead of saying, I want them to come on top, you're like. I want them to flatline. Right, right. Well, even like Sopranos, like, you know, Tony Soprano showed a vulnerability by going to the psych, you know, to the psychiatrist's office. You know what I mean? So, so you, you can have some empathy for that, for that character. You know what I mean? When you have these characters that, you know, that are just assholes and, you know, that's all they are, then it, there's really, there's nothing to support. So, Person of interest. My phone's ringing. I hate this. I, I some from some reason I'm getting all these telemarketing calls. Um, person of interest. You got beat up a lot. Now, yeah. How, how do you? I mean, how does that work? I mean, I mean, every actor. I'm sure it's fun the first time, but then as you said, you open a script, you're like, oh my god, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get smacked around again. Do you just get used to it? Do you have to train for it? I mean, I always wonder. You know, how do these fight scenes happen? Or, and then, I know they use stuntmen sometimes, but yours look pretty real. You'd be getting thrown around. How did? How did? Tell me some of these experiences you had. If you and if you ever well, got I, hurt, I have a stuntman. I, I I have a stuntman by the name of Douglas Crosby who's been with me since brotherhood. Um, Douglas E. Crosby, and he's also a UFC judge. Okay. So if you ever watch a UFC fight in the head, Douglas E. Crosby is one of the judges. That's he's the guy that that's doubled me for. 15, 16 years. How, how did you meet us? I mean, how did you meet him for the first time? Was was it you just brought together because you looked alike and you hit it off? Or I mean, how you did know, you... the stunt coordinator brings a guy that kind of looks like you, and then um, Doug actually Doug's a coordinator of his own right now. He doesn't he doesn't really even double people anymore, but he he does it for me because we've developed a friendship over the years. But um, yeah, I, I met with him on on Brotherhood. Uh, there was a. a, a a, a scene in Brotherhood where my character breaks into John Quincy Adams' home and steals a, a chair from John Quincy Adams' house and uh, and falls down the stairs with the chair trying to flee the police, and the chair smashes in a thousand pieces. And Doug Crosby was the guy who went down those stairs, I don't know, 30 times <laughs> with this chair. And I was like, wow, you know. Um, and we just developed a friendship and, you know, we send each other cards at Christmas and, you know, whenever I need him, I call him and he comes. Now, person of interest, you know, after the first season, I mean, how did, 
how did that work for you? Did you know you were getting picked up right away? I mean, I, I hear I hear hell stories of actors that they don't know until like a week before you're going to get this set. They're like, or or even getting canceled. We're like, I thought we were full go, and then you get a call and go, nah, canceled. No, after season one, we got picked up for the next two seasons. Now, how does that make you feel as an actor, knowing you have that security? But did you sign for all the all the episodes, or did you think you might? Yeah, get when you off? when you when you when you going to audition for um, a pilot, they have you sign six one year contracts. <clears throat> so, and of course, the the the, uh, the the exercise to pick up that contract is at the discrepancy of the of the studio. So they can say, yeah, we're not picking up your contract for next year. Or we, you know, we are picking up your contract for next year. Um, but, yeah, we got to so at the end of season one, we were hugely, uh, hugely popular. Um, they, we, they moved us. And we were on Thursday nights at 9 o'clock, and they moved us from Thursday night to Tuesday night at 10 o'clock. And we still did, I think it was about 10, 11 million views. So, um yeah, they picked us up for for two seasons. So we did a hundred and ten episodes total, and I honestly believe that the show would have continued on. Um, the unfortunate part of it all was that we were a Warner Brothers show for CBS. So if we had been a show that was owned by CBS, I, you know, I would probably still be there. <laughs> but um, you know, profit margins are what drive what drives these networks to determine what's going to um, continue on and what's going to be canceled. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like, do you put up, do you put a pool in a house you own or a house you rent, you right. know? And, and so that's really what happened is, you know, because we were Warner brothers to CBS, that's ultimately why we ended up, I think, getting canceled. No, no, when it got canceled, you know, when you leave, I mean, you've been on a show for, as you said, over a hundred episodes. So I'm sure there's a lot of camaraderie, not only between you and the actors, but between you and the crew. Because people don't know that, you know, the crew is there all the time and you get to know these people. So now it's over. It must be a weird feeling for you because you made a lot of money. So that's good. You had a steady job. But now you have to go back out. I always think it's like a, a, a free agent who, you know, hurts, gets hurt. Then he has to start, you know, from the beginning. When you go off a lead series, when you when you're on a hit series... Was it easier for you to get parts after that? Or did you have to feel like you were starting from the beginning again? Well, you know, it was kind of hard because a lot of people, um, you know, associate me with the character of Fusco. So, um, you know, you kind of go on the bench for a little bit, you know, and kind of let that settle down, go off and do a movie or something like that uh, until that, until that kind of simmers down a little bit. And then, you know, then go off and, and look for your next gig. Um, but, you know, when you're doing a television series like that, you're doing 23 episodes. You know, it's a, you know, I don't want to be the actor. I mean, let's face it. We're not digging a ditch, you know. Uh, and I know what that's like to work for you. So, uh, you know, I've always have that kind of mentality. But, um you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, you know, it's a schedule. You're out there in the cold, it's freezing. It's, we only had May and June off. So we would start up for the next season right after 4th of July weekend. So my family would be going to the beach and I was going to New York to go to work, you know? Um, so we usually started like July 7th and we would go right through to 
like the end of April, we'd have May and June off. And then first week in July, we were back to work. So, you know, after the five years of that, it was, it was nice to take some time off and just kind of hit the reset button, spend some time with my family. We ended up on Sneaky Pete too. Now tell me about that. Cause that's, that's a really good show. That, that, that has a, a good following people. You're even on some of these shows that people, they have, it has a really good following that people are very dedicated to. Yeah, you know, Sneaky Pete, I didn't really know much about that. It, that was another one of those, you know, opportunities that was just presented to me. And I, and I really think um, I got involved because it was the same show creator as um, uh, uh, Timothy Olyphant. Um, uh, um, yeah, yeah. The, what, the, the, I can't think of it. They shot it in Valencia. That's fine. Justified. Yes. It was the same creator as Justified. So it was presented to me and I was like, all right, great. So I did it, but the character never really, it, it never really got going for me. It was, it was, it seemed like it was a character that they liked the idea of having it, but didn't really quite know what to do with it. So I did, you know, I did three episodes each season. And in, and in the last season, um, ironically enough, we, you know, circling back to what we had talked about earlier, um, the show had moved from New York back to Los Angeles because I think Giovanni wanted to be with his family. So the showrunner didn't want to go to Los Angeles with the show. So they hired a new showrunner and they ended up hiring my old friend, Blake Masters, who, who created Brotherhood. So, you know, it's funny how those things, you you know, down the line, you know, 15 years later, we, we kind of recircled and, you know, re rekindled our friendship, you know, and uh, that's what I mean by we're like a pack of gypsies. It's like you, you go on your way and then, you know, you bump into somebody, you know, 10 years down the line. Now you also have the, you have the Boston connection because you had Kevin can go F himself and you have sitting on a hill. Did they come to you? Cause they know you're a Boston guy. I mean, is it, that can, well, can, can, you know, Kevin can, well, can go off himself. I, you know, I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. Um, that was during the pandemic. It was right up the street. You know, I, I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm copped out. I don't want to play cops anymore. I'm like, I'm good. And my manager called me up and he goes, look, it's a pandemic. They're shooting up the street from your house. He's like, you want to sit home in your greatness? Or you want to go make a couple of dollars? <laughs> so, you know, once again, it was one of those, it was one of those roles that I went there that, man, just, you know, it was kind of, you were just kind of there. And it wasn't, it was, for me, it wasn't nothing to get excited about. Is that hard? I mean, is it, is it something that it's, once again, you know, some, I know I've read some actors, you know, would take movie parts where it was in a really cool place. Like, oh, I can shoot in Cannes or I can shoot in Prague. Right. But for you, is it, is it like anyone else, if you're not, totally excited going to your job you're still going to give 100 percent. but when you walk off the set yeah, you're a professional and that's what you, you know that's that's what you do i mean it's like you know it's like it's like anything it's like you know it's like being a firefighter i'm sure there are days and firefighters are like yeah i don't want to run in that burning building today i just don't feel like it. you know i got a cold and i didn't sleep well last night and you know what i mean but you know you get on the truck and you do what you got to do i mean not that not that um you know, acting is uh, anywhere near the, 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 the level of uh, commitment it takes to be of the fire service. But I'm just using that as a, as a, you know, as a 
hypothetical, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, you go in there and you, you, you know, if you if you're gonna say yes and sign the contract, then you have an obligation to give them 110. percent How about City on the Hill? That that shot in Boston. City on the Hill shot in Boston. Yes, it was a that was a pilot, and then uh, I did the pilot, and um, uh, we played this character. I played this character, J.R. Manel. Um, when we did the pilot. I had a certain, um, I had a certain vision for the character, based on what, um, on my experiences. You know the, the, the you know having my uh, background working at city halls for as long as I did, um, I knew a lot of these characters that were being portrayed in, in the show. Um, I knew how I wanted to play Jay Amino. Um, you know, we shot the pilot and. I started bringing him in that direction. And then once the show got picked up, the executive producer felt he didn't want that me to portray that character in that way. And um, we just agreed to disagree. And I just thought it would be best that I just move on. So um, I ended up leaving in episode five. Um, it was a, you know, it's a, it's a good show. I mean, people like it. It, it doesn't work for me, um, but there are people who, who enjoy it. And, uh, you know, good for them. Like I say, it's all art. It's all subjective. It's, you know, completely up to the viewer what they like and what they don't like. Um, but there were, I just, for me, there was just some inconsistencies that just really did, you know. I can't, see, as an actor, I have an obligation to find truth in whatever, whatever it is. And if I am given something that I necessarily don't, can't find the truth in, then... It's really hard for me to portray that. So um, they're going well there. I think they're in their third season. So somebody's watching it. You know, good good luck for them. Good, good to them. You know. Now, now looking back at your career, what would you say are some of your highlights that you really remember? I mean, I, I would think. I mean, could you look at you know the Oscar and oh, working with Clint Eastwood and Sean Penn? I mean, what yeah. are some of those highlights that you go when you look back and you go, "Holy crap!" You know, I started acting late. I, you know, you you hadn't planned to be an actor. I mean, looking back, you must be very thankful. But what are some of the, the experiences that you really stick in your mind? I mean, I, I've you know I've got some great experiences. I've I've you know I <laughs> I remember when I was doing Brotherhood. When I was doing Brotherhood, I got a call from my agent. He said Clint Eastwood's doing Flags of Our Fathers in uh, Rinklevik Ice. We want you to come over and play a Marine Corps lieutenant. He goes, we talked to Showtime. They're going to give you a week off to go and do it. So. As I say, you know, I'm I'm a middle aged man at this point, but I'm you know in, in the in in the world of acting, I'm about a 19 year old kid. You know what I mean? And uh, so I I get on a plane, I go to Iceland. They bring me out. There's a beach. There's three beaches in the world that have the Black Sea. There's uh, excuse me, the Black Sand. There's there's the Iwo, of course. There's one in Iceland, and there's one in Hawaii. That all the sand is all black. It's really it's really kind of cold. But um, so they were shooting this thing in Reykjavik to to um, to recreate uh, Iwo Jima, and uh, so I get there and there's landing assault vehicles. I mean, this, as far as the eye can see out in the ocean, there's these LT landing assault vehicles out there, and there's stuff blowing up, and there's all these um, uh, you know Icelandic men dressed in Marine Corps uniforms marching in formation. They got a tech advisor out there teaching them how to march and, you know, they're going to use them as background players and come around the hill. And, and, and I bump into Clint, he 
got his little cover on, Marine Corps cover. And he looks down at me, and every, you know, all my friends call me Chappie. And he looks down at me and says, well, hello, Chappie. So I says, hey, boss. I go, I got this great gig. I go, I got this TV gig. I'm making this dough. It's in Rhode Island. I, you know, I'm, I'm like coming back for the summers with my family. And I'm like, you know, you, you kind of forget who you're talking to, you know. So he's just kind of standing. He looks at me and shakes his head. Yep, 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 yep. So. They put me there. They, they bring me over to costumes They give me a Marine Corps lieutenant's uniform. They give me a sidearm because I'm, I'm an officer. They give me a, you know, a weapon and helmet and blah, blah, blah. Put me on this landing assault vehicle and send me out to sea. Now, the waves are so violent that I'm being blown off the deck of this landing assault vehicle. So there's a big cleat on the top of the landing assault vehicles that I had literally had to put my arm through the cleat and hold myself like that to keep from getting blown off the deck and because everyone else is down in the bucket and I'm up on top and, and the waves are coming and I'm just getting drowned and every wave and every wave was more violent than the next. And all of a sudden they hear out of a bullhorn, Hey Chappie, how's that fucking TV show treating you now? <laughs> so, I got a thousand stories like that, you know. Give me, give me, give me one more. I, 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 give me one more. You're a very good storyteller. Oh, I, I you know. Um, so okay, we're doing uh, uh, we're doing uh, lot forty nine. We're in the Baltimore Fire Academy. Um, they bring us up. They're gonna put us on a belay and send us out a six story window. Now I'm petrified of heights. So we get up there, and. Um, they put the belay, they put the harness on us, and they say, okay, you're going to put you back to the world and step out this six-floor window and scale down the building. So the captain looks at me, and he goes, you're scared, aren't you? And I said, I'm petrified. He goes, you know what? You don't have to do it. And I said, no, I go first, right? So he's like, all right. I said, because if, if I don't do it, I said, you know, walk keen and, Robert Patrick and Morris Chestnut and Baltazar Getty, Jay Hernandez, these guys are all going to give me a hard time because I've got another four weeks with them in the academy. So I said, I go first. So I go out and I'm petrified. I get on the belay. I got the rope. I got the six story window. I start walking down the side of the building. I get to the bottom and I just feel like I clown my Everest. I'm like, I'm Superman now, you know? So now we have to go back in. Go up to the roof and now come off the roof and put our back to the world and our, and our feet on the edge of the roof and drop back and come down the building. So I do it the first time. Now I'm feeling pretty good about myself. So as I'm going up, there's a 180-pound dummy in the hallway. So I take the dummy and I throw it over my shoulders and I carry it up seven stories to this roof. And I take my turnout jacket off. And I put it on the dummy. And there's a, a producer downstairs on the phone. And I, I go, Cap, I don't know, Cap. I, I'm really, Cap, I'm nervous about this. And I whip the dummy off the roof. And all the producer can see is this dummy coming off the roof with no belay. And it says Chapman on the, on the back of his turnout gear. And he starts wailing into the phone like a, you know, like a high school girl. He's going, call 911, call 911. He's screaming. 
There was an entire uh, Baltimore, there was a class in session for the Baltimore Fire Academy. They all come running up the hill thinking somebody had fall off the roof. And uh, when everyone realized it was the dummy, I looked over the edge and, you know, it, it wasn't good. He wasn't very happy. <laughs> that was awesome. So what's what's uh, what uh, what's is coming up for you? You know, you're just coming off the Oscar. You're just on NCIS. What do you got coming up? I, I got to go back. They want to bring me back to NCIS. They the um, they're creating that world for um, for Gary Cole. So they uh, they want to try to bring bring my character back to the show. So we're we're talking to them about that. I've got a movie called Outlaw Johnny Black coming out with um with yeah. You know, it's just everybody. Anissa Nani Rose from Dreamgirls. Uh, Jill Scott, Michael Jai White, uh, Tommy Davidson. Um, there was so many people in this movie. It's, it's. Uh, it, I did a, I did a film a number of years ago called Black Dynamite. Uh, and being a comic, you should look that movie up because it's one of the funniest movies ever made. It's I've a seen it. You seen Black Dynamite? Yeah. yeah. So it's the same group of people. We just made a western called Outlaw Johnny Black. So that's um, that. That'll be out very soon. We're just kind of finishing up doing the ADR and stuff like that on that now. And, uh, yeah, so we'll see what happens. That's awesome, Kevin. I want to thank you for coming on. Now, I know you're on Twitter. Is it at Kevin Chapman? Correct. People, go follow Kevin on Twitter. Go to his uh, IMDb. Just go watch all his shows. You know, we won't... You know, I'll be I'll be tweeting him if the Sixers play the Celtics, which you know I don't know if it's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, people, so go check out Kevin. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me, Cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.